0: is the connection between humility and well-being? A recent episode of the Joe Rogan experience with Chris DiStefano got me thinking. I won't attempt to transcribe what I heard, and even if I did, the conversation was all over the place as such things go. But Rogan and DiStefano agreed to the proposition that anxiety is associated with narcissism, that thinking or worrying about oneself and focusing on one's own feelings is what leads to anxiety. I guess I've heard this idea alluded to before, but I never really thought it through that much. In my big five personality profile, my level of neuroticism came out lower than average. This surprises me because I'm quite prone to anxiety. On the other hand, my level of self-esteem is quite high and I'm high in conscientiousness. So I'm always beating myself up for not living up to my potential. I often feel weak and a little desperate. If IQ and conscientiousness are the best predictors of lifetime success, then why am I so unsuccessful? I am grateful for the chance gifts that I've been given, the opportunities that have presented themselves. I am the mind of Jesse Winters. He's got a lot going for him. If he fails to achieve, it must be my fault. If I'm not worthy to be who I am, does that still make me a narcissist? A confused narcissist at that. Would a true narcissist be willing to entertain that he has this flaw? It doesn't matter what the label is, I guess. I'm not a narcissist, but am I overconfident? Am I arrogant? I don't think I behave that way at all, but what if I present myself differently than I really am? Anxiety is a sense that there is too much to do and too much uncertainty. How is this entangled with self-identity and the ego? I think it is, but I'm not sure exactly in what way. Let's take a look at some literature and see if we can't spark some new ideas. Here's a paper by Pellen Kesseber. It's called, A Quiet Ego Quiets Death Anxiety, Humility as an Existential Anxiety Buffer. The author says, quote, humility is a personality trait that substantially overlaps with the notion of a quiet ego. Aided by the positive psychology movement, recent years have witnessed a growing interest in humility as a research topic. This body of work betrays humility very positively as a virtue, a character strength, and an expression of spiritual intelligence. Specifically, humility has been related to forgiveness, generosity, helpfulness, better social relationships, and excellence in leadership, and found to be negatively associated with some less desirable personality traits, such as neuroticism and narcissism, Unquote. Wait a second, that's interesting. Humility is negatively associated with both neuroticism and narcissism. If that's true, then it's interesting, given what I was just thinking before. Wouldn't you think that narcissism would be opposite to neuroticism? Too much self-worth versus not enough? Perhaps not. Let's go on. Quote, what is humility and what does it entail? As conceptualized by contemporary social psychologists, An accurate assessment of one's characteristics, an ability to acknowledge limitations, and a forgetting of the self constitute the core attributes of humility. A humble person is first and foremost capable of tolerating an honest look at the self and non-defensively accepting weaknesses alongside strengths. This does not represent a sense of inferiority or self-denigration, but rather lack of self-aggrandizing biases. The propensity for seeing the self in true perspective is typically accompanied by an awareness of the self's smallness in the grand scheme of things. Humble people tend to be more sensitive and feel more connected to forces larger than themselves, be this force God, humanity, nature, or the cosmos. Finally, and relatedly, those who stand in humility exhibit a remarkable lack of self-focus and a talent for self-forgetfulness, for becoming unsolved they're easily able to take themselves out of the middle of the picture and direct attention toward the greater world beyond. In seeing, honoring, and potentially contributing to something bigger than themselves, they transcend egotistical concerns and the attendant urge for defensive self-serving maneuvers. Okay, so humility entails having an accurate assessment of one's characteristics and limitations. What if neuroticism occurs on a spectrum where having too much leads to disempowerment, and having too little leads to self-aggrandization. In that case, lying firmly in the middle might lead to an appropriate sense of external and internal loci of control. Everything is neither completely under my control or completely out of it. Jesus, isn't that what the Stoics have been talking about? To the extent that I am too hard on myself, it could be that I take responsibility for factors outside of my control. It can't be that simple, but this analysis is making at least some progress. And there is another idea about humility brought into the description here. The author says that humility implies a lack of self-focus. This has to do with priorities, right? I can definitely attest to the fact that in my happiest, most joyful moments, I am not self-focused. I'm engrossed in an awesome movie scene, or laughing vociferously at a joke shared among friends, or proudly admiring something one of my children is doing. In a phenomenological sense, I have disappeared, the world of my experience is filled up with happiness, so there's no room left for my ego to occupy. Just now, I thought of something else. The examples I just gave of egoless joy are all imagined to take place in the presence of friends and family, not in the presence of strangers. Could it be that the implicit psychological safety offered by real friends and close family members makes it easier to not monitor ourselves, to let go of the controls? Kesiper writes, quote, The current research program set out to test the idea that a quiet ego, as exemplified by humility, can buffer death anxiety. A humble outlook, as we have seen, is characterized by a propensity for seeing the self in proper perspective against the bigger picture and by low levels of self-focus. These qualities cast humility as an effective source of existential comfort and protection. To start with, those who possess humility have a relatively less intrusive ego that is secure in its reality. The self, to the extent that it is possible, is a non-issue for them. It follows that threats to the self, including the prospect of death, should be less alarming for humble people. They should be less likely to overreact and resort to unsavory defenses to fend off the threat. Furthermore, humility entails a penchant for seeing the larger context and accurately and non-defensively appraising one's place in it. It would stand to reason that as a result, humble people would be more at peace with the nature of existence, including the finiteness of every life. Given this interrelated set of reasons, humility is expected to shield death anxiety and obviate destructive modes of dealing with the knowledge of one's mortality, Hmm. It seems as though the suggestion is that there is a measure of trust, a level of courage in humility. That's interesting. I guess I hadn't thought of it that way. In that paper, they describe a set of studies aimed to test the hypothesis that what they call a quiet ego would reduce death anxiety. The studies were pretty small and not that sophisticated, in my opinion, so we can take what they conclude as, at best, suggestive. All the studies showed a predicted reduction in stimulus-driven death anxiety in the high humility group compared to the low humility group. Based upon this, they claim that self-transcendence is a better buffer against death anxiety than self-enhancement. Trust is related to security. I've noticed that experiences which turn out positively make for good memories. In an important sense, and a tragic one really, the memory of an event or a period of time is better than the real experience of it. I can see why, but it's still kind of sad. When you are there in the place and time, let's say on an adventure like snorkeling in the ocean, the excitement and novelty are at high levels, but there is a sense of danger and uncertainty as well. Back home, safely on the beach, around the campfire that evening, that's the real joy. Having had the experience and sharing stories, now the events of the day are forever secured. They are unmitigated by fear. The memory enjoys a lack of egoistic implication. What if I this? What if that? How stupid do I look in these goggles? In fact, there is a kind of distance between the now-self and the then-self. We can all laugh at the pictures together. I did look ridiculous in those goggles, didn't I? But that ain't me, not now. That's the asshole in the photograph. Nothing comes to mind with such force when I think about the idea of the ego sense and death anxiety as the studies on high-dose psychedelics in cancer patients. So I'll take, take us to a 2016 report by Roland Griffiths et all. It's called, Psilocybin produces substantial and sustained decreases in depression and anxiety in patients with life-threatening cancer, a randomized double-blind trial. The authors write, quote, the classic hallucinogens, which include psilocybin, are a structurally diverse group of compounds that are 5-HT2A receptor agonists and produce a unique profile of changes in thoughts, perceptions, and emotions. Several unblinded studies in the 1960s and 70s suggested that such compounds might be effective in treating psychological distress in cancer patients. However, these studies did not include the comparison conditions that would be expected of modern psychopharmacology trials. Subsequently, human research with these compounds was halted for almost three decades because of safety and other concerns raised in response to widespread non-medical use in the 1960s. Recent resumption of clinical research with these compounds has established conditions for safe administration. Two recent double-blind placebo-controlled studies with the classic hallucinogens psilocybin and LSD, examined effects in 12 patients with life-threatening illness, including cancer. Both studies showed promising trends toward decreased psychological distress. Of most relevance to the present study with psilocybin, Grab and colleagues showed that a low to moderate dose of psilocybin decreased a measure of anxiety at one in three months and depressed mood at six-month follow-up. Also relevant, a recent open-label pilot study in 12 patients with treatment-resistant depression showed marked reductions in depressive symptoms one week and three months after administration of 10 and 25 milligrams of psilocybin in two sessions separated by seven days. The present study provides the most rigorous evaluation to date of the efficacy of a classic hallucinogen for treatment of depressed mood and anxiety in psychologically distressed cancer patients. The study evaluated a range of clinically relevant measures using a double-blind crossover design to compare a very low psilocybin dose, intended as a placebo, to a moderately high psilocybin dose in 51 patients under conditions that minimized expectancy effects, unquote. Here are the results. Quote, the present study demonstrated the efficacy of a high dose of psilocybin administered under supportive conditions to decrease symptoms of depressed mood and anxiety, and to increase quality of life in patients with a life-threatening cancer diagnosis. 11 of 17 therapeutically relevant measures fulfilled conservative criteria for demonstrating efficacy of the high dose of psilocybin. The data show that psilocybin produced large and significant decreases in clinician-rated and self-rated measures of depression, anxiety, or mood disturbance, and increases in measures of quality of life, life meaning, death acceptance, and optimism. These effects were sustained at six months. For the clinician-related measures of depression and anxiety respectively, the overall rate of clinical response at six months was 78% and 83%. And the overall rate of symptom remission was 65% and 57%. Participants attributed to the high-dose experience positive changes in attitude about life, self, mood, relationships, and spirituality, with over 80% endorsing moderately or higher increased well-being or life satisfaction. These positive effects were reflected in significant corresponding changes in ratings by community observers, friends, family, work colleagues, of participant attitudes and behavior. The results substantially extend the findings of a recent double-blind pilot study with a lower dose of psilocybin in cancer patients that showed non-significant trends for benefits of psilocybin compared with placebo on measures of depression and anxiety, with some significant decreases relative to baseline demonstrated at one to six months. The time course, magnitude, and qualitative features of the high dose of psilocybin on session days were consistent with those observed in previous studies in healthy volunteers. The significant association of mystical-type experience during session one with most of the enduring changes in therapeutic outcome measures five weeks later is consistent with previous findings, showing that such experiences on session days predict long-term positive changes in attitudes, mood, behavior, and spirituality, unquote. Among other things, psychedelics are a means to divorce the two forms of self, the point of view and the construct, the ego is a self-construct. A high-dose psychedelic experience enables the continuity of existence of being without being the self. Michael Pollan describes this well. Here's a brief paragraph from his book, How to Change Your Mind. Quote, temporarily freed from the tyranny of the ego with its maddeningly reflexive reactions and its pinched conceptions, Of one's self-interest, we get to experience an extreme version of Keats's negative capability, the ability to exist amid doubts and mysteries without reflexively reaching for certainty. To cultivate this mode of consciousness with its exceptional degree of selflessness requires us to transcend our subjectivity, or, it comes to the same thing, widen its circle so far that it takes in, besides ourselves, other people, and beyond that, all of nature. Now I understand Now I understood how a psychedelic could help us to make precisely that move from the first person singular to the plural and beyond. Under its influence, a sense of our interconnectedness, that platitude, is felt, becomes flesh. Though this perspective is not something a chemical can sustain for more than a few hours, those hours can give us an opportunity to see how it might go and perhaps to practice being there, The high-dose psychedelic experience is no picnic in the park. Not for me, it wasn't. Those were the most harrowing hours of my life. Why? Why is it that people high in anxiety have such difficult and counterproductive experiences with these compounds? I know what it was like for me. I was trying desperately to hold on to myself, to my ego. It was like standing in the precipice of an airplane and refusing to jump. The fear was overwhelming. I felt as if I knew that if I did not hang on to reality with the full force of my will, I would die. What hubris, thinking of it now, what shameful hubris to think that I have the power to live or die, that I, that stupid construct and the thing which holds my world together, was I afraid to humble myself? I was at the portal which leads to something greater than me, and I was afraid to step through and be in its presence. I was like Adam in the Garden of Eden, having tasted the forbidden fruit, and now dodging God that he should not witness me in my piteous mortal nakedness. I had tasted the forbidden fruit mine was a mushroom. I didn't want to stand in the presence of God. I wanted to go home. I wanted back inside the matrix. I have always reasoned that I would rather know the truth and suffer it than to be blissful in ignorance. That has been my reasoning, an abstract claim to myself about myself. Can I really claim to be that courageous? Having been tested, did I not fail? Did I not show my own superstitious nature in believing that I am my ego? It seems that people like me, people who struggle with anxiety, are the ones who most need what psychedelia has to offer. If anxiety is a function of identification with the ego, then relieving it in the long run might be achieved by therapy with psychedelics. But we are the ones who can be harmed by it psychologically. I think the harm comes from going to the doorway and refusing to enter. The ego held and was thus made stronger. This makes anxiety worse. Maybe this is our purgatory. I said in a previous episode that the beatings will continue until I no longer deserve them. The kingdom of heaven is thus withheld. A man, rich in ego, desperate to force a camel through the head of a pin. They say you can't take it with you. Never a truer statement.